0: This is Dean Mathis, the director of Capital Ministries, Michigan. This time of year, when we reach this Christmas season, I take a break from the usual series that I may be going through in the Bible studies that are given to you, and just stop and focus on this wonderful event in human history. And today, I'm going to do a study out of Luke chapter 1, verses 67 through 79, that I've entitled Christmas, a miracle. The word miracle is a very powerful word. When we hear the word, we, our ears pick up. It carries a connotation of something wonderful and marvelous is going to happen. And because we live in a predominantly Christian culture, it always evokes thoughts of God and thoughts of things that God has done. That's what a miracle is it's a sign, it's an act that is so impossible in the ordinary rhythm of things that you would call it a miracle. Now, the word gets used rather sloppily in many ways, and it is not always truly a miracle when the word is used. I think, to me, the most notable example happened in around the incredible events of the 1980 Olympics, which were held here in the United States, where the U.S. hockey team, pulled off one of the greatest upsets in sports history when they defeated the Soviets. At that time, it wasn't Russia, it was the Soviet Union. And the Soviet hockey team had dominated the Winter Olympics for decades. But on this particular evening, in the medal round, the most unlikely thing happened in all the annals of sport. This American hockey team, made up of college hockey players from all over the United States, amateurs, went up against one of the greatest hockey teams in the world. And by all accounts, the Russian team or the Soviet team was truly a professional team. That's all they did. The American guys were all college students and had to be amateurs, or you couldn't participate in the Olympics in those days. And so in the final seconds of that game, when it was apparent that the Americans were going to pull off a stunning, stunning victory, Al Michaels, who was announcing for ABC News, which at that time was the world's leader in sports television, in the final seconds of that match declared, Do you believe in miracles? Yes. That phrase went down as one of the most iconic phrases in all of sport. It is quoted to this day. Later in 2004, they made a movie out of that event called The Miracle on Ice. And because of that pronouncement by Mr. Al Michaels, That event is called the Miracle on Ice. In 1999, Sports Illustrated named the Miracle on Ice, that is the win of that U.S. hockey team over the Soviets, the top sports moment of the 20th century. In 2008, the International Ice Hockey Federation named Miracle on Ice as the best international ice hockey story of the past 100 years. So the miracle aspect really captured our imaginations and kept it there. But what these guys did was not a miracle. It was one of those incredible events when a group of young men teamed together as a team, played like a team, and literally played above themselves, motivated by the emotion of the moment, motivated by the incredible coaching of their coach, and motivated too because we were in the heights of the Cold War and the Soviets were our perceived biggest threat. But a miracle has to be something more than this. It has to be something that just can't happen any other way, and there's no other explanation for it. And in Luke's gospel, as well as Matthew's gospel, the Bible describes the incredible miracle that is Christmas itself, the birth of Jesus Christ, the incarnation. And Luke begins his narrative with the birth of the forerunner of the Messiah, the man we know as John the Baptist. Zacharias was a priest. He had gotten his assignment to go to the temple and conduct his priestly duty. By that time, there were so many men that were in that category that a priest would probably get to function maybe one week out of his entire life. And so Zachariah was an older man by this time, and he was there doing his ministry. And an angel appeared to him. He was rather startled when the angel appeared because he appeared to him on the right side of the altar of incense. And there was a legend at the time that if an angel appeared to you on the right side of the altar of incense, you were a dead man. And so Zacharias was terrified. But the angel said, I'm Gabriel. I'm not here to scare you. I'm here to give you a blessing. I'm here to give you a prophecy. You're going to have a son. And Zacharias uh, was incredulous. He said, how can this be? I'm an old man, and my wife is past childbearing years, and this isn't going to. How is this going to happen? And Gabriel upbraided him. He said, "You, how dare you question me? I stand before the face of God. I've come in from God to tell you this truth. And so, because of that, you won't be able to speak until the baby is born." So sure enough, when Zacharias came out of the temple, he couldn't talk, and so everybody there realized that something magnificent had happened. So he went back to his home village. Well, as the book. Tells us Elizabeth, kind of like Abraham and Sarah of the beginning of the Jewish line in the Old Testament back in the book of Genesis, the miraculous happened. She became pregnant and she had a relative, a younger woman, a much younger woman, who lived up in the hill country of Galilee. A few weeks later, the same angel, Gabriel, appeared to this young woman that we know as Mary. Her name in Hebrew, of course, would be Miriam and announced that she was the chosen one, the one predicted. By Isaiah chapter 7, verse 14, that a virgin would conceive a child and bear a son, and you shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. So, this is going to be a child brought about by the Holy Spirit of God in the body of a woman. He was going to be a real human being, but he was also going to be God in human form. And so, she did not question fact that God would do this. She said, I'm your handmaid. You know, she surrendered to the Lord's will. But then she said, look, I I don't have a husband. How will you bring this about? She wasn't questioning that it would happen. And he said, you'll be overshadowed by the Holy Spirit and and that which is conceived in you will be holy. It will not be a result of sin. It'll be because you have agreed to be the bearer of of the child of God. And so she left in his hands two big problems. My fiance let us know that Mary is a a virgin. My fiance, and usually the engagement was about a year long in that culture. What, you know, you're going to have to take care of him. And then you're going to have to take care of the fact that usually a a woman found an unwed mother could be subject to capital punishment. And so she said, I I just have to trust you with that. Then the angel told her that she needed to go down and see her her relative was also with child in her old age. Again, a miracle. So Mary makes the trip down, and when she arrives in, uh, at Elizabeth's house, then Elizabeth makes an announcement. You have come. You're carrying the Messiah because my child, who is to be the forerunner of the Messiah, leaped in the womb when you came, and so she sang a song of praise, and then Mary sang a song of praise, which is filled with prophetic overtones about what her son would be then after that was over, she stayed with Elizabeth about three months and then went home. Matthew then picks up the narrative and explains how, in a dream, the angel came to Joseph, the fiancé of Mary, and told him to go ahead and marry her. She hadn't done anything wrong, and Joseph was contemplating giving her a writ of divorce or annulment, but he wanted to do it quietly. He didn't want to shame her, and he certainly, of course, didn't want her harmed. But God said, no, you, you go ahead and take her as your wife. And then the Bible made it very clear that Joseph and Mary did not have sexual relationships until after Jesus was born. Now, Mary did go on to bear children with Joseph. She had four sons, and she had at least two daughters. But after Mary went back to the Galilee region to live, to stay, until they traveled to Bethlehem, Zacharias, at the the, the time of John the Baptist, was born. the, The baby to Elizabeth was born, and when it came time to name the baby, she said his name would be John. That's what God told Zacharias his name would be. And the word John, of course, means grace. And Yochalan is, is the, how you would say it in Hebrew. And so he is going to be a proclaimer of the grace of God. He is going to be the announcer of God. He is going to be the fulfillment of what Malachi promised, that the forerunner would come before the Messiah and would announce the fact that the Messiah was at hand. So, When John was born, all of the relatives gathered in and said, well, well, what are you going to name? Because the custom was you named him after a relative. And Elizabeth said, his name will be John. And the people threw a fit. They said, no, you can't do that. That's breaking custom. You're supposed to name him after one of the family members. And so they turned to Zacharias and indicated that they wanted him to tell them what the name should be. And so Zacharias asked for something to write on, some kind of writing tablet or something. And he wrote out his name will be John. His name is John. At that point, the Holy Spirit came and took over his vocal cords, and he was able to speak again, and he uttered a prophecy which begins in verse 67 of Luke chapter 1. And his father, Zacharias, that is John the Baptist's father, Zacharias, was filled with the Holy Spirit, and he prophesied, saying, Blessed be the Lord God of Israel, for he has visited us and accomplished redemption of his people. So the purpose of this baby that is to be that has just been born will be he will be announcing the coming of the Messiah. God has visited them and he is going to bring about fulfillment of the prophecies that he made in the Old Testament to bring up the Messiah and then to bring the Messiah into the world and that the Messiah would be redemption. He would provide a method of redemption and has raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of David his servant. So the word Zechariah means God remembers, and the name Elizabeth means the oath of God. So in this prophecy, he said God is going to keep his oath. He had made a promise to the house of David, and then he had also made a promise, an oath to Abraham about the Messiah. As he spoke the truth of the holy prophets from old, salvation from our enemies and from the hand of all who hate us, to show mercy toward our fathers and to remember his holy covenant. The oath he swore to Abraham, our father, to grant that we being rescued from the hand of our enemies might serve him without fear. So the Messiah is going to do all of these wonderful things. He's going to fulfill the Old Testament prophecies about this one who would come, save us from our sins, and in the future, bring about total peace in the world. In verse 75, it says, and in holiness and righteousness... Before him, all the days of our lives. So, out in the future, there will come an age when men will live in holiness and righteousness forever. And then he said, You, child, talking about his son who had just been born, John the Baptist, will be called the prophet of the Most High God, for you will go before the Lord to prepare his ways. He's going to be the one that will set the stage and call the nation's attention to the fact that the Messiah was there to give his people the knowledge of salvation by the forgiveness of their sins because of the tender mercies of our God with which the sunrise from on high will shine upon us. So the forerunner is going to call attention to the Messiah and the Messiah is the sunrise. He is the one who will be the culmination of all the promises of God and all history will be divided by him and all history will be concluded by him. And then he is the one that will take away our spiritual darkness, and also the shadow of death. He will remove death from those who believe and guide our feet into the way of peace. Verse 79 is a very powerful and wonderful promise. When he says to shine upon those who sit in darkness and the shadow of death, he's talking about the Gentiles. In the scriptures, it is at that particular time, the Gentiles were without knowledge of the covenants of God, and therefore there was no way they could really truly know God. But this coming one that this baby just born, this baby named John, this coming one would announce the birth of one and the appearance of one who would shine upon those who sit in darkness and the shadow of death. That's us who are Gentiles. We now have the light. That light has come upon us in the person of Jesus Christ. And then he said to guide our feet, that is he's referring to the Jewish people there, into the way of peace. It had been prophesied earlier that the Messiah would, of course, fulfill the promise that God had made to David, that out of his line would come a king that would rule the world. And it was also to fulfill the oath that he had made to Abraham, that Abraham's seed would bless the world. So this wonderful set of announcements, and I'm just touching the top of it, because it is profound with incredible biblical teaching and prophecy, is announcing to us that the only way for us to be truly right with God and right with ourselves and for the world to ever be truly right, it will take a miracle, an absolute total miracle. And everything about the event surrounding the conception, the birth, the life, the death, the resurrection of Jesus is a miracle. And today, when a person comes to believe in him and to receive the gift of eternal life. It is a miracle. The fact that I can have my sins forgiven, you can have your sins forgiven, and to be given the gift of eternal life because of the finished work of this one who was born 2,000 years ago is a miracle. The greatest thing that could possibly happen to us. There is no problem we face. There is no issue that we have to deal with that is more threatening to us, than the issue of death itself. And there's only one antidote to death, and that antidote is the life of the Lord Jesus Christ. He lived a life we cannot live. Why? Because he was the God-man. He did not sin. He was truly human, but yet he was totally obedient to God as a human being, and he did not sin. And then he died on the cross, an unjust death for our sins. It was, he didn't die for himself. He hadn't done anything wrong. He died for our sins. And then to show us that that atonement was complete and that that was what the death stood for. He was raised from the dead. He rose from the dead. He lives now. He lives in heavenly places. And those of us who believe in him, who believe this account We believe the miracle of Christmas. Know that someday he's coming back. I know it's been a while. It's been a long time since that promise was made, but he does promise that he will come. And when he does, history will culminate in him. We have ahead of us a lot more history and we have an eternity ahead of us. But that eternity and that future history will be blessed by life right now. We're in that season of turmoil and the end of days in which there's cataclysmic things happening and men's hearts fail them for all the bad news that sometimes comes and they're, we're faced with all kinds of difficulties as a race. But we can rest assured with those who know God, who love Him, there's peace on earth and goodwill toward men. And I hope that during this season, you don't forget that we are still in a world that is dominated by a miracle. God has come upon us. God has walked among us. God has provided a way for us to have eternal life. And even the events that are unfolding today and tomorrow and in the years ahead between now and the the return of our Lord, all of those are in the hand of God. And it's all governed by the miracle that happened 2,000 years ago when God became a human being, Emmanuel, God with us. May God richly bless you.